Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. This episode, we look at the 2019 adaptation of Stephen King's Dr. Sleep. One of my earliest memories of seeing a horror movie in the theater was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I was 10 years old at the time, visiting my grandfather in New York, and my dad decided since I had seen Alien the year before, and loved it, I was old enough to see what was being heralded as a modern horror masterpiece. I'd seen the trailer, a simple but effective slow motion sequence showing blood pouring out of the Overlook Hotel's elevator, and was eager to see the movie, having developed a love for horror at a very young age. I was sure I could handle it, but as I waited with my father and stepmom to be seated in the Times Square theater where it was showing, I found myself very afraid. I considered chickening out, telling them to take me back to my grandfather's apartment, but that same part of me that wouldn't chicken out on a roller coaster ride pushed me into the screening. When the lights went down and the ominous classical piece Diary filled the theater, I could already begin to feel my skin crawl. And for the next two hours and change, the feeling only intensified. The character of Danny Torrance reminded me of myself just five years prior, and the terrifying figure of Jack Torrance, minus the murderous rage and alcoholism, add to that my fear of ghosts and you had a movie that seemed specifically designed to scare the shit out of me. Needless to say, I loved it. Over the years my love of The Shining only grew, and I watched it every chance I could, buying it both on DVD and Blu-ray. I would easily rank it in my top five favorite movies of all time, and as my favorite supernatural horror film. As a kid, I read the Stephen King source novel after I saw the movie and struggled with the differences, but reread it as an adult and was able to appreciate what King was trying to say as an author as opposed to what Kubrick was after as a filmmaker. In my mind, both versions were equal, but I would not extend that courtesy for the god-awful 90s TV miniseries, not even with King's involvement in ringing endorsement. When I heard King was considering penning a sequel, I was curious if skeptical, and when it was finally published, I rushed to read it. My thoughts on it were lukewarm at best. I wasn't much of a fan of King's later work, and I felt the novel had some decent ideas but significant problems story-wise. I felt a visionary directorial hand, as Kubrick's was, could potentially turn it into something special, but that would have to wait for the inevitable movie adaptation. In November 2019, that promise arrived in the form of Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep. I'll save my thoughts on the movie for the discussion, but with Flanagan's involvement, I was confident that it would be at least a success by horror film standards. But despite the pedigree involved, including leads Ewan McGregor and Rebecca Ferguson, the movie was a box office flop. So why didn't fans of one of the great horror films of all time flock to see the sequel? That's the question we'll explore on this episode of Tentpole Trauma, 
Mike Flanagan's 2019 adaptation of Stephen King's Dr. Sleep. Okay, I'm Sebastian, and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. And Troy. Hello. And we will be discussing the 2019 Mike Flanagan film, Dr. Sleep. All right, so let's start with, you know, the obvious place, which is your history with The Shining. The movie, I can't remember when I first saw that, but I know I saw it when I was really young. And the only thing I remember about seeing the movie is that it was definitely rented on that Warner Brothers green and black striped video, that VHS box. Oh, yeah. With just a picture of Jack Nicholson on there. Mm -hmm. I I remember that really well. And I remember how it like stank like cigarettes because most VHS rental places (laughs) kind of did in those days. They were just really dirty. Yeah. Because people were just shuffling these things around. But it was that giant plastic keep case uh, that was already kind of cracking in places. So I remember that. And then I've seen this film so many times that I, I honestly can't remember like a very first screening of it. But I do remember absolutely being terrified by the film. I think it's one of Kubrick's masterpieces. Yes. And uh, one of his best films. One, one of the best horror films ever made. And I did read the book. So I read the book after I saw the movie when I, at the time when I was starting to just plow through Stephen King material. And that was around the seventh grade. And I was just reading every Stephen King book I could get my hands on. I was a massive fan of his. And I remember right away being a little put off by the differences from within the book from the film. There were things that were coming up like the hedge animals, and it was just kind of like, what? Like, yeah. I didn't really kind of understand. And this was sort of my introduction to how different movies were than the source material. Yeah. You know, because I would pick up the book and I thought I would be reading the movie. Yeah. So this was kind of my way of breaking into how things were adapted. Yes. And reading the very the very different things that happened in the book. The book seemed a little more forgettable than the movie and I kept trying to find my favorite parts and there was stuff in there but it was different from the movie. That's not to say that all Stephen King adaptations are better than the book. It's I think it's about half and half, but um this film in particular completely elevated it to this other level and and th- how he made this psychological horror out of this um story about basically this this kind of fear of this man hurting his family i i thought was brilliant i also saw the film first i saw it at a young age i don't remember the exact age but definitely was in elementary school um too young to have seen it as I saw most horror films too young as well. Um, and yeah, also saw this on VHS and I read the book much later. I'm glad I saw the, the film first because I do like the film better than I like the book, but I was okay with that. I was okay with those being separate and different. It, it didn't have to match. Sometimes when I read a book first, and then I have such expectations, even if I try not to, for when, a, when I see the film after. So I, I think it worked going in this order. And of course, with the film, you know, same as Troy, it was, it was just mind-blowing. And there was a lot of things I, seeing it so young initially was a lot of things I definitely didn't understand. 
um, as well, but it was really creepy and, and I, I was scared and, and it wasn't like, um, nightmare inducing or anything like that type of scare, but it was just, it was really unsettling. Are we talking about the miniseries as well? We can. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, because I, I did want to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I did. I watched the miniseries when it came out, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and on television. I mercilessly and... mocked it when it came out. <laughs> I know you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciated certain things about it. Like, I, I think that, you know, the topiaries were, were really cool. Were they? Well, it was cool to see that come to life, you know, from what, what was in the book. Um, sure. Obviously, if I had to choose between the miniseries or Kubrick's film, it, you know what the choice would be. The miniseries. Yeah, absolutely. It came out when I wasn't really watching TV yeah. at the time. It was right after I graduated from college. After I heard about it and the word on the street was that it was terrible, I, I finally got around to seeing it on a lark uh, to, to rent it. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was... I don't know. I, I I hate to trash that film because I like Mick Garris mm-hmm. as a yes as a person. Yeah, and it, you always just feel so bad to criticize his material because that guy is just so wonderful. Yeah, he is. But I don't like most of his films. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's the the miniseries is trying trying to pay respects to Stephen King, and it just feels like that. It just feels like the tension between. Stephen King and the first Shining and how affected Stephen King was over that just feels like this film was to try to make things right for Stephen King. And it just feels like a a literal, very low budget dictation. I also feel that uh, this film that we're uh, talking about today, Dr. Sleep, is in a way a apology for the Kubrick film in some ways while also being a love letter to it. It kind of does both things, which is sort of interesting. But let's uh, move on to the book, Dr. Sleep. Um, Jennifer, I'm pretty sure you didn't read the book, right? I did not read the book. I remember you reading the book, but I did not However, I am a huge Mike Flanagan fan. He is, as you know, he's one of my favorite writer and directors. Um, I love Hush. I love Ouija, Origin of Evil. I love Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Bly Manor. And I enjoyed Gerald's Game and Oculus mm-hmm. also. So I'm, I'm like hearing that I was excited to hear that they were uh, doing an adaptation, even ha- even though I hadn't read the book because I was just here for more shining. I'm like, is there more shining? Yes. I was interested. I, I like the idea of a, a sequel. I like the idea of Stephen King writing a sequel to his own material. But I have to be honest, every time I try to read one of King's more recent projects, I am I just have I really have a hard time getting into it. Yeah. And I was a devoted Stephen King fan as a kid. Um, he really materialized my world for me as a kid. I mean, he, he prescribed everything I needed. I, I loved Stephen King as a kid, and I still do. I really love the guy personally. Yeah, me too. I think he's an amazing person. I love his activism. Yeah. Yep. But I, I have to be very honest. I really kind of only like the pre- uh, sobriety material. Yeah, understood. So, not to say that I think he's had some really amazing concepts and and some great ideas, but that early stuff, there's something that's just unhinged and wild about it that 
is I still go back to some of those earlier books like Cujo. And so, yeah, I didn't get around to Dr. Sleep. You were kind of telling me, you were filling me in on it. And so I was really just picking your brain with kind of what was happening with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the same kind of boat you're in. I, I haven't really been able to fully connect with anything Stephen King has done. I feel he kind of went off the rails even before he got sober. But I, you know, I love him for the books that I read when I was younger and I've gone back to some of them and they really hold up and he's a great writer. It's kind of like when you love a band, you sort of love a certain period of the band and sometimes you can't really go into their newer stuff. So I, you know, I feel like that's kind of an apt comparison with Stephen King. And I think Stephen King would be okay with that. That would be something he, as a rock and roll fan, understands. But so, yeah, I, I read the book, Dr. Sleep, and I was definitely intrigued to see how the movie could turn out because I thought that with a strong hand adapting it, it could be something pretty decent. And even though I didn't love the book, and, and you know, I like Jennifer, I liked Mike Flanagan. Troy, were you a fan of Mike Flanagan? Absolutely. So... Yeah, I liked Oculus, Gerald's Game. Okay, so I thought Hill House, The Haunting of Hill House, was an incredible adaptation of what already was was a really amazing book. Love Shirley Jackson. But what he did with that and how he explored past these archetypes and, and found these nuances and these characters and then sort of recreated a new world out of that was brilliant. So he kind of is the perfect person to be handling this stuff. I know that what you were saying earlier, where he's trying to build this bridge between, you know, the earlier adaptation and Stink King's attitude. But um, I appreciate that that he was trying to do that as well. He's trying to reconcile the book with Kubrick's movie is what he's trying to do. You yes. Know, while still adapting Dr. Sleep, the book. So there's kind of three things going on at once, which I think makes the movie um, interesting. Okay, so, um, you know, we get our sort of uh, opening, uh, which is, you know, we immediately get into the homages to Kubrick's film. It opens up with an old school Warner Brothers logo, and we get the the music we associate with The Shining. You know, we start with an overhead shot, but this time we're in Florida in 1980. Um, and we meet our, our main villain, uh, Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson. And she is sort of seducing a young girl who has The Shining. It's very reminiscent of the Frankenstein scene mm -hmm. uh, with yes. the little girl at the uh, pond. I think Rebecca Ferguson, aside from being absolutely gorgeous, is pretty good in the role. She's charming and alluring and scary. I kind of call her the yoga mom horror icon. Yeah, I call her the Coachella mom. So. <laughs> You can't take your eyes off of her when she's on screen. Like, like, yes, she's absolutely gorgeous. She's an excellent actor, and she's so charismatic and terrifying. And just her, her, her uh, phrase throughout the film is, "Well, hi there." And mm -hmm. the way she says it is just like, ah, it's just like it, it gives me the chills. I yeah, I love I love the setup, and the little girl is is also from uh, Haunting of Hill House, and she played uh, Nell, the very yeah. young version of Nell, and she's just adorable. And it's like, oh no, Violet, no, don't do it. Yeah, I mean, Ro Rose the Hat would have if if I had the the Shinnin, 
she would have just drained all of my steam and I wouldn't even know what have ha- what had happened. I just would have been <laughs> just dead because she's that good at what she's doing. At first, when I first saw her, I was a little on the fence because she was distractingly beautiful. And I realized this was going to be our main villain. And sometimes I'm a little put off by casting people just purely on, on how much of a star they, they can look like. Mm-hmm. But... As I realized, because I didn't read the book, as I realized that these people were vampires, she made perfect sense. She's exactly what a vampire should be. She's supposed to be entranced by them yeah. mm-hmm. and seduced by them. And she was all of that. And at the same time, she she did have this kind of animosity underneath her and vengeance. And she portrayed that perfectly. So once I got into what her character really was about, then yeah, I thought she was Great. She's perfect. So um, I watched uh, the director's cut. Jen sort of watched a little bit with me today. Um, so I'll sort of explain the little the, the things that are in the director's cut. There's really not that much. Most of it is just scenes are sort of fleshed out longer. So if you really like the movie, you get a three-hour version of basically the same movie. So that's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your feelings on the movie. The added scenes in most cases do not either detract nor do they make better the scenes. They're just kind of more of them. They just There's just more. As of most director's cuts these days. Um, pretty much. But there's no... An- another disc to put in the packaging. There's only a few <laughs> places where I feel like it, it almost changes the story a slight Bit. There's no sort of plot lines that don't happen, but there are a couple of beats that don't happen in the theatrical that happen in the director's cut that are significant, if not things that change the story. We get the credits, which are sort of set over images of the overlook, and we have sort of the pattern of the rug, which is cool. And so, you know, this is sort of one of the main elements of this film that we should talk about are the recreations of the Kubrick film. We get Danny on the big wheel, which is just about one of the most iconic images from Kubrick's film. We get the setup of the scene in room 237. It's it's what you're paying for, right? Okay, this is this is basically the what you're the spectacle of what you're seeing with the overlook is incredible. That was the price of admission. I was just stoked to be back there again, and I thought they did an excellent job. And I, I know from watching the special features um, how painstakingly they went through that recreation, and they were actually working with, I believe it was the uh, the Kubrick estate to get like plans and and things that were like for the original Overlook setup. Yep. So um, seeing that and seeing the the little boy who was the the actor playing Danny, who they like really nailed that also, and I love. Alex Esso. I think she's such a great Wendy. Yes. And uh, getting to, and she's she's uh, from Starry Eyes, which is also a, one of a great contemporary horror film. But I think the way that they're introducing the Overlook totally worked for me because we're you know it's you're getting flashbacks of uh, you know Danny's you know memories of what happened and and how it's tying into how he's dealing with life now post Overlook. How he's, you know, still being haunted by Miss Jessup, you know, and, and Mrs. Massey. Oh, Mrs. Massey. I'm sorry. What did I say? Jessup? Who's Jessup? I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Mrs. Massey. You know, we get to see the actor who's playing uh, Dick Halloran. And yeah, it's I, I don't know. I, I was just I was I was happy to see what they were doing with 
with all of this and, and kind of doing a, a recap, kind of bringing us up to speed as to where we are now. There's a sort of artificiality to the the scenes, especially the, the way the, the scenes of the overlook that we get in the beginning. They don't feel lived in the way Kubrick's the movie does. There's, his movies always feel so real and lived in, like they're real places that exist in or have existed in the world. And this feels like a really nice dress up of, you know, the Kubrick film. And it's a really expensive, really, really great one, but it doesn't have that like Kubrick attention to detail and lived in quality. I mean, nobody can can really do that except for him. I think Alex Esso as Wendy is the best of all the actors doing the old characters. I think that she really nails the Wendy character and really sort of captures Shelley Duvall without doing an imitation. The little boy's fine. He's a little boy. He feels like he's older than Danny. I mean, I think he is supposed to be older later on, like in the Florida scenes. Yeah, because Danny was five, right? Yeah. And yeah. he's, he seems like he's maybe seven or eight even at, when we get those Florida scenes. And I really like yeah. the Florida scenes. It's like I could have gone for a whole movie of that, <laughs> you know. But um, a lot of those Florida scenes are actually from the end of the novel. They're sort of a epilogue that we get in Florida with Danny and his mom. And, and um, Halloran is actually alive in the book. They meet you halfway in that scene because Danny has the conversation with Halloran. But because he died in the Kubrick movie, he's a ghost in in the movie. So. And speaking of Dick Halloran, I thought that guy was great, too. Yes. Uh, Carl Lumley. Carl Lumley is really great. Um, does a great job as Dick Halloran. We get the scene where uh, Danny uh, sees Mrs. Massey in the bathroom. I thought the makeup effects were great. I thought she looked um, pretty disturbing. Um, what I really enjoyed was actually when we... Uh, took a look at the special features and she was telling a story about how she forgot that she was in this uh, weird gross naked skin suit yeah she wasn't naked but her suit is naked so she was, was sort of oblivious to the fact that she's got this gross uh, rubber naked lady body <laughs> yes and so you have mrs massey and this this suit uh, going around to craft services and you know snacking I I will say that as soon as we see her, there was a bit, a hint at one of the things I, I really have a problem with the movie. It's, you know, we'll get into this a lot later with the end. But once we start recreating those things, the ghosts and these, these other characters, that's where it really feels like, you know, like a, a Universal Studios Halloween Horror yes. Night. <laughs> because right away, first of all, Danny didn't see that. That was... Jack Torrance that saw right, those right. Characters. Well, we're yeah, but we're to assume that Danny saw it too. Jack is the one who sees it in the movie, but we're Jan Danny comes back from the room. Yeah, he he had gone into the room, but yeah, I think that part of why I struggle with this is because it is a direct recreation of that shot. So I would like to have Danny to to assume that Danny saw exactly the same angle and speech and everything from these ghosts that his father saw. I struggle with that. And I know it's a stylistic choice. What I would have liked to see is, is Danny's own point of view right. with some of these characters. And I thought, I think that would have given us a little bit more perspective on his character specifically. Mm -hmm. 
almost like we're seeing Kubrick's film through Danny's eyes. You know what I mean? It's, it takes you out of the movie a little bit. Yeah. That's my take on that. As, as far as the makeup, yeah, it's great. And I think the makeup on, on all of these characters that they see further on is, is again, like incredible. So, um, yeah, we get the scene that we were talking about with Halloran on the bench. He's sort of explaining to Danny why he's still being haunted by these ghosts. And the idea is that the Overlook is now closed and the ghosts are hungry. So they're sort of following him around. He tells uh, Danny this creepy story about his own grandfather, which is pretty evocative and good story. His grandfather who beat him and then came back from the, the grave and... He learned how to put his um, these ghosts into these boxes, and so he gives Danny this basically psychic tool which allows him to put the ghosts into these boxes, which then he goes back to the, his apartment with his mom and does that. Jen, how did you feel about this scene with uh, Dick Halloran? I thought it was really great, and it's, you know, it's actually really important because it's setting up um, something for later on in the film because Dick is telling Danny about how, you know, he didn't plan on helping him with his shining. And, you know, he walked into the hotel and, and you know, now he's a part of his life forever. And Danny's like, Dick says, you're going to do that for somebody else. And Danny was like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So it's, you know, leading us up to what's going to happen later in the film with Avra. This is one area I think that this, you know, trying to, to make some kind of new connections and, and fix some things about the book that, so Dick Holleran is alive in the book, yes. but the fact that he's a ghost here, first of all, you know, I love their interaction. I think this is some of the, the strongest stuff in the film. Uh, the fact that he is a ghost and, and Danny is getting this advice from a dead person makes Danny's character all the more lonely. Yeah. And I think it actually helps his character that he's getting these tools to deal with life lessons from phantoms is actually more interesting than if Dick was still alive and serving a bit of a, like an uncle or something. So um, moving on, we get to, we cut a, a forward, I mean, about 30 some years, and we meet um, our middle-aged Danny, now Dan Torrance, and Ewan McGregor. We're introduced to him in a scene where he basically wakes up in a bed with a floozy he picked up at a bar where the night before he got into a bar fight and then also got into some cocaine with her and she is apparently dead from an overdose in the bed there's some puke in the bed she also has a infant son which Danny didn't Dan did not notice the night before apparently and he basically finds out that she took his money for the cocaine so he leaves her dead in the bed with her child. He gives the child some Cheetos or something and then takes her money and her food stamps. And then Dick Halloran shows up and basically guilt trips him. And Danny's like, well, I can just put this memory in one of those boxes. And Dan Dick is like, no, you can't do that with memories. You can only do that with ghosts. I thought this scene was great. It was, I mean, just kind of a lot to take in. Um and it's just such a sad, sad scene is this baby is just there and has been neglected. And Danny, you know, is going to bounce with just leaving the kid and the mom unconscious there. I don't know how on earth they don't notice a child <laughs> um, when he's shacking up with this this woman. Sorry, that's just there's no way that you can avoid not hearing a kid in an apartment like that. But well, 
I mean, I think this kind of thing happens. I think that, you know, maybe the baby was sleeping and, you know, they, they honestly were just into their own shit. Right. I mean, they were drinking and doing a lot of drugs. And they didn't really notice or, you know, or Danny was fucked up and he just didn't remember it until the morning. I think this probably happens more often than we would like to think that it does. I think Ewan McGregor does something that's pretty impressive while also being completely understated, which is that he plays like a kind of quietly wounded guy. And it's not like a showy role. And, you know, this movie is dealing with alcoholism and the fallout of alcoholism. You know, Stephen King wrote this after he had recovered from drug and alcohol addiction. So, you know, that's clearly what's sort of at the forefront of the of of King's mind and uh, in the character of Danny. And I sort of appreciate now that I've seen the movie a few times, McGregor's performance isn't showy in any way. It's not doing that thing like Michael Keaton and Clean and Sober where you're getting like a big performance of somebody sobering up. It's like he's doing this kind of terrible thing, but he's doing it in such kind of meek way. He's not, you know, he's clearly not a bad person, but he's just so messed up and he's so wounded. He freaks out at that guy in the bar, but he's so drunk. You know, you know he has this rage in him, but he also... We see very little of that because basically we go right into recovery mode after this horrible. And I'll kind of add that this, you know, Ewan McGregor portrayed this perfectly. And this character really is a classic Stephen King character. Whenever you have a, a, a main character in a Stephen King story, whether they're at their lowest point or they're wildly successful, they always have this, there's a layer underneath of shame Mm -hmm. of, our trauma of loss and and that's always been throughout Stephen the Stephen King world and I think this you know the way that Ewan McGregor portrayed that is so classic for for Stephen King. Well, and and King you know in one of the special features on the the uh, Blu-ray he talks about how he doesn't actually see the characters in his mind in any sort of physical way because they're really all sort of just extensions of him and he feels that he's seeing out through their eyes. So I feel like Ewan McGregor kind of externalizes that idea pretty effectively without being actorly about it. He's just sort of just doing a really understated, but at the same time, very internalized performance, which I think is, is pretty impressive, especially after you've seen the movie a couple of times, because it doesn't, it jump out at you. I also noticed on, on this viewing that, um, it looked like, I don't know if it was just his costume, but it looked like he was a lot heavier in those earlier scenes. And then when you see him five years later and he's taking his, his chip at the uh, AA meeting, he looks a lot more fit and trim. Yeah. Um, that could be just the sweater he was wearing or something, but I, I really noticed that in this viewing. It's booze bloat. Booze bloat, yeah. Okay, so in the director's cut, we get intro- our first introduction to Abra here, and it's you know it's before we meet the Abra that we're really going to know who's like a, a thirteen year old. There, there's a few scenes with a younger Abra, and the director's cut we get this one where she's playing piano as a little girl, and her parents tell her it's time to go to bed, and then they wake up in the middle of the night, and the piano is playing by itself you know, indicating that she's got these psychic abilities. I think it's a fine scene. It's well done in the director's cut, but 
it's understandably you know cut in the theatrical because it basically serves the same purpose as a scene we'll get in a minute. In the theatrical, then we get the uh, introduction of uh, Snakebite Andy, who is a character that Rose and her right-hand man slash lover, Crow Daddy, who's played by this actor named Zahn McLaren, who did a really good job on the TV show Fargo. He plays sort of a um, frightening character on that show really well. Here he's more sort of just a right-hand man. He's 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 threatening, but not as threatening as he was on Fargo. But he's, he's good. Wait, you're talking about the Crow? Yeah, Crow Daddy. Okay. Uh, but they're sort of hanging back in a movie theater watching um, this girl basically use her mental powers on this creepy older pedo guy who's been who's found her online and is trying to hook up with her. She basically hypnotizes him into going to sleep and then she carves a bite mark into the side of his face that will create a scar and then he'll be forced to reckon with the fact that he's done this and he won't be able to hide it. I thought it was it was a really great scene. It was a little again like some of these style choices um you know they're at this they're watching Casablanca. Some of that stuff feels a little overly stylized. Like when they're at a at a retro movie theater and you know, we're, we're getting glimpses of Humphrey Bogart and we're, it's sort of taking nods at cinema. And sometimes that works for me and sometimes it doesn't. But it's the, the actual characters and what's going on in that scene is great. And Snakebite Andy, the, the actress playing that part, is perfect. She looks like a kind of cupie doll, but she's also sort of threatening and menacing. She's got kind of, yeah, she's kind of kind of deeper voice than she should. And she seems older than she looks. But she she can totally play off a 15-year-old, kind of. But yeah, she seems advanced for her years. So she's just playing that that character perfectly. I thought it was a great introduction. I, um, you know, I enjoyed seeing her, uh, Snakebite Andy, do her thing in the theater. And, you know, obviously she's been mistreated by men. So this is, you know, her revenge for what has happened to her. Rose pretty much says that to her. So when she's outside the theater and Crow Daddy approaches, she's able to do her magic on Crow Daddy and make him stop. She's like, you know, I think she says, like, you want to leave me alone or something like that. And then she tries to say that to Rose and Rose is like, oh, no, honey. You know, some, something along the lines like that's that's not going to work on me. Also, I, I think because they're sort of applauding this girl for getting it back at a pedophile Right as it's introducing your villains, like you're on their side. Right. They're like, yeah, let's, you know, let's use some of our, our evil powers to, to sort of get back at some of the evil in the world and feast off of that a little bit, you know. I mean, we saw them kill that girl at first, but the, the little girl in, in the opening. But it's nice to, to have a scene like this and sort of be seeing the world from, from their, like, we're, like I said, we're sort of rooting for them at this point. In this scene, anyways. Yeah, I don't really know for sure what the point of um, Snakebite Andy's character is long term in the story, but I like her role in the beginning as this sort of recruit. And we get to learn about the um, true knot from within by seeing how they, you know, they turn her into one of them and everything. It's the classic sort of, she reminds me a little bit of the character in Near Dark that, um, Jenny, what's her name, plays? Jenny Wright. Yeah. She plays a sort of similar character there. Her hair looks sort of similar. And we, you know, we get a sort of similar, like, this is 
how the vampire's world works. There's a lot of near dark yes. in here. There's in, in the extra features on the disc, Stephen King was talking about how he was inspired going driving up and down through Florida. Yeah. And Maine, how he would see these Winnebago's or these RVs and think like, oh, yeah, but I feel like Stephen King has seen Near Dark. Yeah. He has complete, he's seen that movie. So I feel like there has to be, whether he's conscious of it or not, like that, it feels like Near Dark worked its way into this story. Totally. With with the caravan, like how they're traveling and everything, it's, it's very similar to Near Dark. But I, I do have to say in regards to that uh, uh, delete, in regards to that special feature that Troy mentioned, I do kind of feel that the idea of like RV vampires is a little silly in that sort of Stephen King way of like, is that really scary? Like, you know, Stephen King <laughs> saw these RVs at rest stops and he's like, oh, that'd be scary. It's sort of like when he gets scared of greasers <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> printing presses or whatever it is, the toasters or whatever is going to scare him. Mostly in RVs, you get like retirees. Not murder vampires, yeah. but you know, whatever <laughs> it, it works well enough. And I definitely get near dark vibes from it. So we move on. And now in the theatrical, we get our real introduction to Abra at, a, at her birthday party. A funny little story. When um, Jen and I saw this, the first time we saw this, we saw this at the Arclight in Hollywood. And the guy who plays the party magician was behind us <laughs> with a bunch of his <laughs> friends and and I and they were like really into the scene and they were like ha like laughing at everything he did and I was like and and the only reason I knew this is because I was like why do these people think this party magician is the funniest I mean he's sort of funny but like they they were laughing like he was the funniest thing in the world and so I turned around and looked and he, he was sitting right there and he looked exactly like he did in the movie but only without the magician costume That's hilarious. He sounds like he's actually that character. <laughs> right. No, totally. He totally <laughs> seemed like that character. I was going to say I actually saw this at the arc light as well but I decided for some reason or another to wear my contact lenses which I never do. And they got dust in them on the way over. And I had to run out like crying. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was happy to see the actress uh, Jocelyn Donahue as Abra's mother. Oh, yeah. She's from House of the Devil, which is a movie Jen and I both love. Jen really love, loves. Big time. A House of the Devil is her comfort food movie. It sure is. Yeah, I'm a fan of that too. I really like her. I think she's really pretty and she makes a nice, mo a good mom. For Abra, I like that the the mom and dad are a biracial couple. That's that's good. The limited roles they have, they're both very good. Then we learn that Abra has The Shining because the magician uh, does a trick with some silverware, and Abra's like, "I can do that too." And so then later after the party, they're in the kitchen and they look up on the ceiling, and Abra is holding all the silverware up on the ceiling, and then. They sort of look at her like she's a freak, and then she drops all the silverware. This is this is where Mike Flanagan's talent is really showing that he can kind of move the camera around and and use tension. Um, you know, open at this kids' party, everything's funny, and then you everybody looks up, and there's all these sparkling silver spoons everywhere. It's it's a nice visual. Agreed. And I think that the visual, Flanagan's visual sense is really, I think, cool and interesting. He does sh things with the camera 
all, he, he, he's very fond of moving the camera and doing sort of fun camera tricks, but they're never showy. They never have that feeling no. of being like he's showing off. They're always just really tasteful and really just kind of perfect. And I think it's one of his strong points as a director. I totally agree. And there's, there's other scenes we'll get into later where I think he's, you know, choreograph as far as his choreography is just brilliant. He's also utilizing camera moves that Kubrick used as well. It's a nice way where you have a director who's so keen on camera work to borrow some of those things and, and blend the two films. Like there's, I was just thinking there's one scene where Ewan McGregor swinging the ax and the camera follows the ax which is done in The Shining when Jack Nicholson is doing the acts. And so, yes, but, it, but again, you're, you're right. He's not being over with it. It never pulls you out of the movie and demands no. that you pay attention to it. It's always just kind of the perfect thing to do. One little nitpick I'm going to make in one trick that I feel he goes to the well too often is he uses the heartbeat motif from the original movie. He uses it a lot like that heartbeat comes in like almost every scene where there's the ghosts or the true knot or whatever it's totally effective but it's kubrick doesn't use it that much in the shining and i feel like um flanagan kind of leans into it too heavily and especially in the director's cut you just start to feel like okay <laughs> here comes the heartbeat again all right, I get it. But, you know, it's a nitpick. I don't mind the, the heartbeat. That's one of the motifs that I think works. I like it. He just goes, does it too much. Yeah. Well, I didn't notice it until now. <laughs> I ruined the movie for you. Yeah. Um, okay, so we get, uh, we're at with the uh, True Knot in their caravan, and we have Rose in the her trailer, which is a pretty cool trailer, um, with Andy. Rose's trailer? Yeah. At first, when I saw it, again, it reinforced the Coachella mom. Yeah. Uh, motif and and it's I was thinking like this RV definitely has been to Burning Man a right. lot, <laughs> but as I saw it this time, I realized like stylistically, it, it kind of works. Like when we're inside of it, you know, and on the outside it's sort of a dirty RV, but inside it's got these hardwood floors and these Persian rugs and antique Tiffany lamps, and there's even like a bath in there. You can imagine she's got like her essential oils and her bath salts and stuff. But yeah. but I was realizing it definitely that, smells like patchouli in there. Yes, for there's sure. tons of patchouli oil in in here. Absolutely, and, or sandalwood, <laughs> both. <laughs> but and I'm there for it. Are you kidding? If I was in that trailer, I'd be like, all right. It kind of works for a vampire's lair. Because it's it's just enough gothic accents that this is like where Castle Transylvania would be. And I and I realized it looking at it this time. I sort of saw past the patchouli oil uh -huh. and and realized that, you know, we're we're really hinting at a vampire's chamber here. Uh -huh. And and I and I think it works, although like I said, that vampire is definitely got season passes to Burning Man. I love her trailer. It is so cozy. I love like the little like bed reading nook that she's like meditating and drinking tea in and it just all of the flowy curtains and just overstuffed pillows. It's just lovely. It's definitely one of those things that when you first see the movie, you're kind of like, uh, this character, uh, you're not sure about it. But the but if you're if you enjoy the movie as as we do, 
she, her character becomes somebody you really kind of enjoy being around. She has um, her, my favorite line she get delivers is in this scene where she goes, gravity hasn't even noticed. You. Oh yeah, that's great. Like where she's talking about to, to Andy about how she's still young and how she can be young forever. It's a great vampire pitch. Like it's one of the best vampire pitches in recent memory. Rose says to Andy, you know, who am I? And Andy says, you know, you're the psycho bitch that kidnapped me. And then Rose does her magic on Andy. And then she's like, no, dear, who am I? And Andy's like, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. (laughs) And Rose is like, oh, that worked a little too well. Yeah. I do like the idea of these vampires where you're not completely locked into your age. Right. Like in Near Dark, there was the, uh, the little Josh Miller character. That's and all, in it was interview with a vampire. Yeah, a you're, you're sort of trapped in your age. Where this, you have you have a little leeway to grow. So Andy Snakebite Andy can can eventually be 17 in a hundred years. It sounds like a good deal to me. Like that's definitely the that's the vampire group I'd want to be with, especially with uh, Rose the Hat. Yeah. So we get uh, Danny arriving in New Hampshire and the extended cut. It's he goes to the bus station and whatever. It doesn't matter. It's not important. Uh, in the theatrical, he arrives in New Hampshire. Uh, I felt like they really nailed New Hampshire. I'm not sure if they sh- they filmed it in New Hampshire, but um, my father lives in New Hampshire and Jen and I visit him regularly. And it looked like Concord, New Hampshire. I know it wasn't Concord, New Hampshire, but it definitely feels like Concord, New Hampshire. Very quaint. Yes, very quaint and very specifically New Hampshire. And we meet Cliff Curtis, who is a really dependable character actor as Billy, who sort of takes um, the at the end of his rope, Dan, under his wing. I really like uh, McGregor's stewed bum look. He's still, of course, handsome, but he's now he's got a he's sort of bearded at this point and his hair is all messed up and he just makes a really good bum, stewed bum. He's got a black eye. Yeah, he's got a black eye from being in that fight. And, you know, uh, Billy takes him basically under his wing and gets him his apartment, which uh, has this blackboard wall, which I think is a very clever narrative device um, from the book. So it's, you know, King King came up with it, but it's utilized pretty well by Flanagan. I will say that I know the movie is long and there's a lot of story to get to, but I almost wanted more of Danny bottoming out and before he gets to recovery and stuff. I could watch an entire film just on Dan Torrance getting sober. Yeah. That's how I felt about it. I love his recovery. No, I think they got the recovery so right. Um, I love the the AA meetings and his, and Dan's share and talking about his dad and, you know, getting to meet um, Bruce Greenwood, who's the, the town doctor. And, you know, Dan has an interaction with him where, you know, he feels like he just has to tell him about where his lost watch is and... Mm-hmm. Then, you know, Bruce is intrigued and, and invites him to his office and, you know, ends up, you know, giving him a hospice gig, which Dan is so great at. Like he's just I, I could watch just a whole movie of that part of his recovery as well as just being there for the people who are passing. It's some really, really beautiful filmmaking there. Yeah, I totally agree, Jen. Yeah. I And this is why I kind of have a problem with you know, the bringing in the elements of Kubrick's Shining and the Overlook into this, because I feel like when it works as a sequel to The Shining is when we're dealing with sobriety, because 
we're seeing a, a new character, and which is great. We're seeing a brand new Danny Torrance, and we're seeing a, a different story about a different phase in life because of an incident that happened, which was the other story. And yeah. so I agree. I think it would have been really interesting to prolong the recovery period and have that character arc go all the way through to the end and, and de be dealing with that and finding his ability to help other people as he's learning to help himself. Because I think that's right. where this, the strongest part of this story is working. But Jen, you're missing the most important part about this scene, and that is that the doctor's office is a replica of the... Yes, it's a replica of the office in The Shining. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, it's just what the it's just what Mike Flanagan is choosing to to do with this. But that scene is obnoxious. There's winking at the camera, and then there's like dancing on a stage for the camera, right? And that's what that scene is doing. So it's again like it's confusing. It takes me. It's totally distracting. Takes me out of the movie. And I and again I'm thinking. Little Danny Torrance was not in that meeting. This you can't even try to argue that it somehow is working no, its way. He was nowhere near that meeting. He was like hundreds of miles away from. Yeah, that he was meeting. in another state. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a harmless, it's a harmless callback. Only like super shining fans are gonna really notice it. Mm, I don't know. It's like they. I feel like Troy's they kind a of, super shining fan. I'm a super shining fan. I feel like they built this amazing Overlook Hotel. And then Mike Flanagan was like, hey, guys, you know what? I got an idea. And yes. they, he just probably wanted to have that office built to have it as his office. So he could sit right. there, you know, as he was working through the screenplay. We would all do that. I was going to say we all would do the same thing if we were <laughs> if we were working on this movie. Where's Mike? Where's the director? Oh, he's in Mr. Ullman's office. <laughs> Working out another draft of the screenplay. Of course, we'd say to the set decorators, build me the shining office and let that be my office during the, the filming just to hang out in. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm of two minds about it. It is kind of ridiculous, but it's also kind of awesome. Um, I do kind of I'm a little sad again. You know, I know that there's only so much time this movie has to devote to characters, but uh, the, the Bruce Greenwood character just shows up and then we never see him again after he gives him this job which is kind of too bad because i really like his character he's a really warm um character i believe in the uh, book the in the book dr sleep he dies at some point or something but um yeah they just don't do anything with him in the movie but he's great in the scenes that he's in and he does a really good new hampshire accent but yeah so then we move into the sort of scenes with danny's job at the hospice we get a really nice deathbed scene with uh, Nicholas Pryor. It's, that's the first guy, right? Yeah, Nicholas Pryor is a actor who's been in millions of things. Oh, I know. I know. I light up every time I see him. He was the dad in Risky Business. Yes. And he was the dad in Less Than... He's always the dad. He was in yeah. Less Than Zero. He's been everywhere and does has been done everything. Yeah. So I feel that it's really like completing my journey with him that we get a deathbed scene with him it's like i felt the exact same way it was like oh now we're when well, we're seeing him retire from his acting career as a dad and i like the device with the cat picking people out and stuff it's good and, and it's a really um moving scene i feel like it's a little weird that the way the movie is structured we basically get two of these scenes that are almost the same scene with him comforting an old man 
you know, we get one about three scenes later where um, he, you know, he's comforting another old man, but, you know, years have gone by. And so we're sort of seeing Danny now more together and he's been doing this for many years and he's sort of better at it, I guess. But it's sort of structurally, it's sort of structurally odd to me that we basically get two of these scenes almost back to back. This is where they give him the name Dr. Sleep. Right. This is where he's... Yeah, Nicholas Pryor gives him that name, I believe. And then by the time we get to the second old man, he's known as Dr. Sleep around the hospital. But also in this segment, in this uh, section of the film, we, we learn that Abra is communicating with Danny via the chalkboard, which I think is a good device. I agree with you. I think it was a good tool. I, I liked that they were doing that. I thought it was cool that the whole wall was a chalkboard and they just had their messaging going that way. By mentioning the sort of, you know, the the two scenes in the hospice that are sort of similar. My, one of my main criticisms of this movie is that I feel that the book, it follows the structure of the book too faithfully. I think the book has a core story that works, but I feel that Mike Flanagan at some times is too afraid to just kind of do his own thing and make strong ad adaptive choices. And I feel like this happens to a lot of directors, including Mick Garris, who get sort of sucked into the, the vortex of Stephen King, because Stephen King is this larger than life character. You know, I'm sure in Mike Flanagan's case, he totally worships the man as, as to we all. So I feel like, I feel like there's times when this movie could take chances with the, the story and the structure that it doesn't take. And I think that it does so because he doesn't want to anger Steve. <laughs> I, th I would say it's probably really hard. It looked like they were in conversation early on, yes. um, you know, and he was, he kind of, uh, and he already had a relationship with Stephen King because he had done Gerald's game. And so, yes. yeah, it's hard. You've got Stephen King on set. I think it would be really difficult in that situation to say, look, we're, you know, I, I have written this differently and this is how it's going to be. And yeah, it's different from your book, but I think it'll work as a movie. I think he, it's a little bit of idol worship, but it's also because they were a little, it seemed like they were a little too close for him to distance himself and, and experiment. There's definitely times, even having not read the book in a long time, I recognized almost everything, you know, pretty much all the major beats of the book are in the movie and they're pretty much exactly the way they're described in the book. I mean, I think that that Flanagan does make it better. I think he improves things for sure, but I I felt like at times he could have done way more. He could have pushed in things into even even better directions. One thing I like is we have this sort of scene with Rose and Crow Daddy on the RV roof that we mentioned and Crow Daddy's talking about um how there's not as much steam in the world. Steam is the thing that they they need to make their lives longer, the way vampires need blood. They feed on this sort of residue that comes out of people who have the shining, and that elongates their lives. Crow Daddy talks about how now in the modern day, you know, things like modern conveniences and like meds and stuff make people's shining 
less effective and so they have less steam and netflix yeah he says netflix (laughs) (laughs) i missed that actually which is ironic since mike flanagan has shows on netflix well they take it in by i mean they they incite fear and and pain into the the person that has the steam to make the steam the sweetest and then they suck it out and then they put it in these canisters that look like space age thermoses the most terrifying thermoses of all time so yeah this leads to the uh, baseball boy who is played by um, Jacob Tremblay. He was in Room, which was sort of the his sort of tour de force role, but he's been in a ton of other things, some horror stuff. He's playing this kid who's really good at baseball because basically he's got the shining and he can tell when the pitcher is going to pitch or, or whatever. So they're sort of casing him out. They get him to, um, by using uh, Snakebite Andy's talent for pushing people, they call her a pusher because she can push people to do things. They get him to come in the van and then they bring him to this behind a refinery and they basically murder him. But not only do they murder him, they have to cause him pain and suffering before they do it. And um, this scene in the book is definitely the scene that you remember most from the book and i think the movie follows suit with that in that that this is the most sort of harrowing scene and i gotta say it's all on jacob trembley because i mean like you wonder like oh why did they get this kid who's like the hot kid actor for this one scene and you know why when you watch the scene because he's so good and he sells like the pain and suffering and it's like oh yeah I know throw down for Jacob Tremblay for this scene because he makes it work yeah that scene was was totally disturbing and it said on the uh, the extra features on the disc they were talking about how you know the kid looked great but they couldn't use any of the performances from the other people because they looked so horrified yeah reacting to his performance that they were supposed to be enjoying it. And they, you right. know, so they were doing, they were actually doing the opposite of how they should be reacting. Yeah. And Jacob Tremblay was like high-fiving everyone and just yeah. running off to have a snack. Like he was so not bothered by any of this. Yeah. He thought it was fun. The baseball murder is 100% the most harrowing scene in this film and possibly any film that I've seen in quite some time. It's like, it's so brutal, and uh, you know, you you said it. It's because it's Jacob Tremblay. Like he sells it so hard, and my heart is just like crushed. Like watching him in so much pain. They're creating pain and fear because that makes the steam sweeter and better. And it's just it's just so hard to watch. It's really hard for me to watch, even seeing it after a couple times. It's kind of like. I kind of want to go do something else when it's on, which mm. I'm such a horror fan. It's like, but I can't, I can't deal with, with this. Like it's, if I would have seen this at the age that I saw the shining, I, this would be an absolute kinder trauma. Like I would, I would have nightmares forever as a little kid thinking that these people were going to come and torture me and steal my steam. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really, really terrifying. Yeah, it's rare for uh, any film to dare to be that mean to a child right yeah Yeah. it's they usually cut away or be suggestive about it but to put the camera on this kid's face and then have the villain say like we're going to try to make this more scary and more painful for you and then show the kid screaming and then actually show was there um there was some blood coming from the kid right they would puncture him 
Yeah. Yes. Oh, he, he's he's so he's bloodied by the end. And and the kid even says like to Rose, like, are you are you guys going to hurt me? And she's like, yes, and yeah. it's just so awful. And then in the director's cut, it goes on even longer. Like they're oh, like, I want to see that. Oh, my God. They just like it, it's like extended like it, it's yeah, it's 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 a lot. I almost kind of felt like that kid's performance outdid theirs in a way. Like they kind of weren't as scary as they should be. His performance was so good that I kind of wanted them to be even more gritty than they were. But I think it's like what you said, what was in the extras is like, it was, it was really hard for them. Like they were having, like, I think to get them as enjoying it as much as they show on screen was quite quite an ask to get them there because they were they were all having a hard time except Jacob Tremblay wasn't having a hard time. I will say this though about the performance of the True Knot in that scene, they look like they're like a, having a real good like drug orgy or whatever. Yes. They're yes. getting really kind of off on it and I think that that those reaction shots from them are pretty pretty sexy. Um, yes. Yeah. They're definitely like, it's like orgasmic to them. They're like, you know, like they're like super high on their own supply. So then we get our introduction to the teenage Abra that's going to be carrying the film. Um, and it's, uh, an actress named Kylie Curran. And I think she's great. Um, I hadn't seen her in anything else before, but She's really, really good. She holds her own with Ewan McGregor, which is, is and um, with um, Rebecca Ferguson, which is no small feat, I think, especially for uh, a young actor. I love her. I yeah. want to see a whole, also, I'd like to, going into my uh, wish list, I'd like to have a whole movie of Abra Stone as well. Like, just what's Abra up to? Like, what what what's going on with her after this? Because... She's so captivating and such a good actor, and she's just a beautiful girl. And um, yeah, it's uh, the introduction to her and and just her. Um, I think what uh, Rose the Hat calls uh, her a looker because she's she's looking in as the baseball boy is getting murdered. Yeah, and having to like see that, and it, it's just yeah, and seeing how she's reacting to it and she's just completely freaked out and screaming and, and her parents just, you know, think she's having a terrible nightmare, you know, cause she's like, they killed him, they killed him. And yeah, it's uh yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great part of the scene. And, and it's a little, I think it was a little more also in the director's cut of Abra and Rose. Right. I mean, like she, it's already established in the theatrical that, that Rose sees her, but I felt like they did a little, little more with that. Yeah. There's, I think there's little bits here and there, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's fine. You don't need it, but you know, again, it's just a, a little more of, of their, uh, awareness of each other. She's, her performance is great. I mean, that, that girl is really talented. I, um, <clears throat> this might just be a preference thing, but usually the characters that have these powers, in Stephen King's stories are a little more troubled with their powers. And this girl seemed like overly confident and super excited and jazzed that she had all this, like she was just happy the whole time yeah. until she saw some of this stuff, you know, and, but, but even when she was talking with, uh, with Dan, it was just like, Hey, what's up? You know, it's just, I guess sometimes I, I like to see characters like that a little more of an outcast. Yeah. So I would have liked to seen her, 
getting picked on at school a little bit or something. They give you one scene when she's in schools and she's using the uh, computer to look yeah. up uh, baseball boy. And oh. she's like reading the minds of the right. other kids in the class. Some girl says, stop staring at Sweet me. At me. The, the freak, the freak's looking at me again. There's yeah. not enough of her in school to really get a strong idea of whether she's popular or not, but she doesn't have any friends. We never see any friends. I guess I, I just like that stuff. Maybe it's not important to the story, but I usually think that's that's very satisfying to to see that a little bit more. It's I think it's implied. It's implied that she definitely doesn't have any friends. And then also like when she comes home from school one day, you know, her dad's just like, I was cool. She's like, fine. You know, I'm yeah. going to go upstairs. You know, it's like it's and she also she just seems like such a well-adjusted kid. Yeah, that that's I think she is. But I think she also she definitely has the awareness that she knows that her shining makes her weird. So yeah. she really like she tries like there's even a point where um, it comes up a little bit later where she's having conversation with Dan and, you know, he's like, you know, you need to share something with your parents, you know, about what's been going on. And she's like, no, they almost think I'm normal, you know. And yeah. so she's like really trying to hide it. Yeah, I, I can see. I, I guess I hear what you're saying. There's some of that information in there. It just it's not reflected in her character. Even down to her bedroom, it's just like, you know, it's really kind of magical and clean. It just didn't <laughs> seem like the kind of teenager. Maybe this is an old archetype that's been used to death, but it's just kind of what I'm used to, the troubled teen with magic powers. Yeah. Well, I definitely think one thing you can't fault Flanagan for is his ability to work with uh, young actors, and I think he does a really good job. I mean, you see it oh, in yeah. the his Netflix series, and here yes. he's just he's clearly very good with working with children. Abra sees um, psychically where Baseball Boy was killed, um, and she has this sort of confrontation with Rose in the supermarket where Rose basically sees Abra in the dairy case and the reflection of the dairy case. And then the dairy case shatters. And, and all of this, this is, is, is a good scene. You know, it's sort of unique in the sense that it's, you know, taking place in this really prosaic setting where our vampire villain is just <laughs> kind of, Getting you know, groceries. Shopping for I, tofu I love, or something. I, I love seeing Rose push a shopping cart and looking right. for almond milk. Right. She's like looking for almond milk. And uh, I feel like this movie works better when you don't really think of it as a horror movie. When you like yeah. if I if I'm looking at this scene as a horror movie, this is not scary. You know, it's like she looks in the, the dairy case and then Abra's image is in the dairy case and her eyes are glowing and then the dairy case explodes and like a and like a supermarket worker workers like, are you OK, lady or whatever? Like and this is our villain. It's not often <laughs> that you see your villain like get like thrown on their ass in a supermarket, but it's like a good scene. You know what I'm saying? I, like, I love that scene. It's it's unusual. I love the scene too because I feel like it's 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 yes it's unusual and it's uh, we're getting like to see that Abra is fucking powerful yes. like that's like I mean because Rose is the big bad and the yes. big bad like Abra like goes looking for Rose like that's what happens and she finds her at the supermarket and then she Rose sees her and then Rose tries to like get in her head or something because you see Rose's hand go around the back of Abra's head. 
Yeah. And then that's when Abra was like, get out of my head. And she like yells. And then the, the, the dairy case is, breaks into shatters. And then Rose goes flying down the aisle. And it's just like, she, you can see like that the actor, Rebecca Ferguson is really like, she's bringing it. Cause she's like completely like, wasn't ready. She wasn't ready for Abra. And I, I think that that's, that's, I think it's a great scene. I also really love seeing villains put in like very pedestrian settings rather than these big fortresses or, you know, even when they're with their convoy in the woods, that's kind of a, a little bit more of a, has more mystique and mysterious setting to it. But when you take villains and, and just stick them in a grocery store, that's almost kind of like what Tarantino does really well. Yeah. You know, just put them on a sidewalk or, or like at the post office or something. And it, there, there is something about it that, that makes it a little bit disturbing because then they really walk among us, yes. you know, and I kind of like seeing, I like seeing villains have to do their laundry or yes. something. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Well, and then also with the, the true knots is, uh, I thought it was interesting because they are, you know, a, a different type of vampire because normally vampires don't eat food. And we see like, Back at the camp in the beginning, uh, Grandpa Flick, like with a little Weber barbecue, like, you know, it's it's just like an establishing, you know, like somebody, I think it's Crow Daddy's coming in or something. He's like, hey, Grandpa Flick, you know, how are you feeling? He's like, PG Keen. And he's like grilling burgers. Yeah. So it's like, okay, these, these uh, creatures still do eat food. They have to go to the grocery store and stuff. It's like the steam isn't enough to sustain them. You know, they still have to get uh, sustenance and nutrients or whatever, which is is interesting. So after the scene, um, Rose, you know, goes back to Crow Daddy and explains to him how powerful Abra is and how much she wants uh, Abra. I'm going to start to have uh, some issues here that we're starting to set up Abra as being overpowered. Like she's already really friggin powerful. And if she's already this powerful, like, why is Rose so confident that she can just t- take her? I'm, I'm sort of, I haven't completely kind of turned on the, on this issue at this point in the movie, but it, I, it's starting to set it up here. And I'm, I kind of have a little bit of a problem with it, but Abra goes to meet Danny in tiny town. He tells her about the shining and, you know, so they, they sort of have their moment where they, they meet and understand that they are cut from the same cloth, so to speak. And then um, Abra tells him about Baseball Boy and the True Knot. And Danny's basically like, okay, you got to stop poking this bear. You got to go into hiding. Don't shine. Don't do any of this. It's the classic sort of hero refusing the call moment. It's just kind of odd structurally that it comes here because we're almost like halfway through the movie but it's a pretty good scene i like this scene i like that they finally get to meet i like that they know we you can tell they know each other before they actually are introduced yeah like because they have this this connection um i like that uh dan torrance calls out that like this is uncomfortable for this day and age for a grown man to be sitting with a teenager you know like on a bench because he's like this looks creepy and she's like no you're my uncle dan which is kind of true because you know we have this connection and i just i like the whole setup and yeah i mean i know it's 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 structurally a little off that this is the point where we're getting the the hero's you know call to action and he's refusing it but it's also like it's just kind of the way that this film is as far as there's 
so many things going on. I mean, well, this it's not initi- structured like a, a movie normally is. And that's not a bad thing. No, but. it's not bad at all. But I, I hear what you're saying. That's a little odd. It's like, but because actually, like, as I mentioned earlier, this is coming from, you know, little Danny talking to Dick Halloran back in 1980. Right. Yeah. Like where Dick Halloran's like, someday you're going to have to, you know, and he's like, I don't want to. And then like, you know, but now we've got sober Dan, and it's, I think it's even, you know, Sober Dan, the whole thing with sobriety is being of service. And mm-hmm. so this is like, it's bringing up a lot for him, but he's also just genuinely like scared for her and for how he's had to behave with his shining his entire life is like, yeah. just keep it on the DL because people, bad people are going to come after you. So, you know, he's just trying to tell her like, no, this isn't, this isn't something that we should get into. Um, but it's also like, it's, it's, you know, she's got a strong point. She's like, you know, look, if we can just get, I I saw the the guy with the glove, if we can just get this glove that he was playing with, then, you know, at least I can, you know, figure out where, uh, they're going, or I can also figure out where the, the, the kid's been buried. So like his family can have some peace. You know, it's like it's it's a it's a sound call, but I also get why Dan's like, let's not do this. It was kind of a scene that just I, I sort of glazed over first, and and now that I think about it, it it is a little bit weird because they're supposed to have been talking now for five years. Yeah, I guess I would expect a little bit more of an emotional response from Dan. I mean, the girl's very excited to finally meet this guy. Um, you know, and it's it means a lot to her that this is a real thing, that there's a real person that she's been talking to. But he also, I feel like, should have some, a a little bit more of a connection with this person he's been conversing with, who is also shares the same ability that that he has that separates them from other normal people. Mm -hmm. So it's weird. I guess it doesn't really work on that level because he kind of doesn't, his reaction doesn't really explain anything maybe it would have been interesting if he just broke down and started crying and then said look look this we can't do this right something a little bit more that had an impact like this guy's still going through a lot um in the director's cut around here we get a flashback to um wendy and danny in florida and this is one of the few things in the director's cut that definitely matters and kind of changes the story a little bit because in this flashback um danny can tell that wendy is thinking about Jack and she's sort of reliving the trauma. And then when she looks at him, she sees Jack in him and he, and he knows this, you know, she denies it. She's like, are you thinking, he he asked her, are you thinking of dad? And she's like, no, no, I'm fine or whatever. But he knows that she's really thinking about him. So then he goes to the bathroom mirror and he looks into the mirror and his, his eyes as young Danny are brown but then he looks at himself in the mirror and he changes his eyes to blue eyes, which then explains why Ewan McGregor has blue eyes and Danny Torrance had brown oh, eyes. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he like psychically huh. changes his eyes so that they don't remind his mom of her. And that's the last time he used the shining. He says that too. Yeah. Yes. That sounds like a really important scene. I kind of wish that was left in there. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a very long scene, so it's a little strange that it's not there. But yeah, so, and they don't explain it. You're sort of like, what? What went what, what? You know, there's no real context given to it at that moment. But then later in the movie, he basically explains that he did that, which was also cut from the theatrical. So, uh, yeah, we're then we're sort of back at the hospice. 
the um, the cat leads Danny to Ghost Dick Halloran. We're reminded of the overlooked ghosts and the boxes and that whole device. I do kind of question here why the True Knot hasn't found Danny <laughs> up to this point, especially since in the beginning when they get that little with when Rose gets Violet, it's in Florida and Danny's in Florida. So he's nearby and they acknowledge this like Rose is like later on, like, why haven't I found you before? And it's like, uh, yeah, why haven't? It's like one of those things where there's sort of like a plot hole, but they're just addressing the plot hole. Yeah. <laughs> so that you, you you're like, well, they addressed it. It's fine. But but they don't really address it. I mean, it's obviously just because this is a story that was written 40 years later and you know, you can't retcon. Yeah, I guess I can, I can excuse that. Yeah, it's, a it's, minor. it's fine, but it did occur yeah. to me. And then huh. they do bring it up that why haven't they found him before? I have a question though about Dick Holleran in the book. If he's still alive, does he die at some point in the book and become a ghost? I think in or... the book, I could be wrong. I think in the book, they start off with him still alive and then he, but he dies of like old age. Well, he's definitely a ghost in the movie. Definitely we, in the we, movie. We're yes. talking about the movie. He's a ghost in the movie. And right. he's because a, the, he's movie a is, the movie is a sequel to the movie, The Shining, in which Dick dies in that movie. Yeah. So the scene at the hospice is important because Dick is telling Danny that he needs to help Abra out. He's coming back again to, to say what he said when he was a little boy. Yes. He's like, you know, this is this is something that you need to do. And, and so, yeah, that's why it's important for him to be there. And, and D- Dick is Danny's conscious. Yeah, he's, he says he needs to pay his debt. Yeah, because of what he did with the well, because he's because he's being tortured still by uh, seeing even though he's in sobriety now, he's still that we forgot about the scene where we get to see the um, the woman that he left behind and the yes. baby. And they're like. They haven't found us yet because they were used to hearing him crying. It's just like, and there's flies. It's like, it's horrible. So he's still haunted by that. Yes. After the scene in the director's cut, there's a scene where Crow Daddy goes to um, Rose and he's, he's carrying like a, a, an iPad and they've, there is a local story of an earthquake in Abra's town, which I think happened when Abra shoved Rose out of her mind or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's how they know Abra is in the town of, in New Hampshire. They don't explain it in the um, in the uh, theatrical. Rose just goes on her sort of mind journey and finds Abra. But it, there's a more concrete explanation in the director's cut of where she is. That's all. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, I've already. Yeah, it doesn't need to I, be I feel there. it's already. Yeah, it doesn't have to be there. I feel like it's already established that the true knots like can figure this shit out. You know, so it's like yes. I, I, it's fine that it's in the director's cup, but it's not necessary. I don't need that to tell me like they need to have concrete evidence to find her. Like I know right. that they've got the skills. Agreed. Then we have a quick scene where um, mom is talking to Abra about their grand, her, her mother, Abra's grandmother. She's apparently sick or dying, and she asks Abra to basically use The Shining to see if Grammy gonna die, and uh, Abra either doesn't know or won't say i think it's implied that she does know and she just doesn't want to say because she doesn't want to be thought of as a freak and it sets up that mom is not going to be around for the yes next few scenes yeah um then we get uh rose in yoga pants um <laughs> she's doing her transcendental uh meditation on the rv and this is visually the most 
memorable scene for me in the movie. I always have liked the idea of like out of body experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that this, that Mike Flanagan really visualizes this really well. And what I love about it is, you know, so we get Rose leaving her body and flying like, you know, above the clouds and, you know, she's got like this sort of airplane view of the United States. She's sort of passing over it and we see like the lights from all these cities and stuff. And what I really like about it is like some of the shots look super realistic and, and like cool, but then some of the shots are sort of cheesy in the way they look. I would say they, they look fantastical. Not, yes. Not cheesy. Yes. Right. I, I like agree. These are these are like Peter Pan clouds. Yes. yes. You know, these silvery clouds. Yeah, yes. you're saying it way better than I was saying it. But yeah, it's not realistic, quote unquote. Yeah. But it's visually super cool. Yes. When I would hear stories about people like leaving their bodies and going on these transcendental journeys, I kind of would picture the way this is that he does it here. Yeah, totally agree. This is my favorite scene in the whole movie for its uh, style and choreography, how it looks. Like you were saying, you like acknowledge how certain things look a little bit um, dreamy and it's otherworldly. And I, I think it's totally appropriate for this scene. And it's, yeah. it's beautiful. It's a really beautiful scene. Yes. And uh, it reminds me that, yeah, you were saying it's kind of how you would imagine traveling this way there was a book by dennis wheatley called strange conflict that sort of describes traveling through the astral plane just like this it's it's the most satisfying and enjoyable scene and then included in this scene when she gets to abra's bedroom it's it becomes even more stylized with like this spotlight you know and then you have all the the card catalog the cabinets and the file cabinets yeah fantastic stuff Yes, getting to Abra's room um, is amazing. The card catalogs, and this is a pivotal scene because this is where um, Abra has got one upped her again. She hurts her, and she hurts her bad. I was going to say, is this the heartbeat? You hear that yes, in the scene yes, too, right? Yes. I was going to say this is where that works really, really well because well. we're seeing a whole new vision, totally different from Kubrick, and then to hear that heartbeat really marries these two films together in this scene. I think perfectly. I agree. Did you guys catch that Abra has some sort of like anime character that she's yes. into? There's yeah, like these. I caught that at this viewing too. There's like posters. Wobble. wobble it's like it looks like Ruby, but it's R W B Y. <laughs> I saw that this time too. Well, she and she says something later when she's talking to Dan about it. She says like you know because he says, "Oh, Rose knows what your room looks like now," and she was like, "No, I changed some things." And like she's wearing, you know, she's got the wig, the anime type wig. Yeah, she's got the blue hair from her anime character. Yeah, yeah, it's she, but yeah, she did make her room look a little different because she knew Rose was coming because she again is ahead of Rose. I kind of wanted more explanation on that anime character in yeah. <laughs> the director's cut, but sadly they did not provide more explanation no. on Ruby. But how about when Rose comes tumbling back into her body and she gets flipped off of the RV? Yeah, she's flung across the country yeah. yes. by Abra, which I think it looks visually amazing. The It's amazing, yeah. Like, oh, and her uh, hand is disgusting. Her hand looks like it's been pounded with a meat cleaver when she like smashes yeah. her hand in the, the card catalog of, of you know her mind. And it's then, a file like, cabinet. Rose gets her hand stuck in Abra's mind 
mind, which is a file cabinet. Yes. And then Abra sneaks into Rose's mind, which is a card catalog. Right, which is a, a cathed- is a cathedral. Right, too. it's a card catalog in a cathedral. So it's yeah. and she kind mm-hmm. of is bragging about it when Rose comes into Abra's room. She's like, "Oh, this isn't quaint. I've got like a cathedral full of these things." <laughs> yes, and then and this is kind of familiar Stephen King universe territory, right? It's like I think in um, either in Dreamcatcher or it, they kind of mention you know having these these like file cabinet worlds to store different either memories or it just seems like it's something that you are used to seeing if you have explored Stephen King's universe a little bit. Totally. So yeah, after that sequence, um, yeah, Rose is flung back to the RV park and she slaps and smacks into her body and falls off the roof, which is pretty great. Mm-hmm. And um, we find out that grandpa, who is sort of the patriarch of this, you know, this uh, group of vampires or whatever you want to call them, uh, is cycling, which means he's basically reaching the end of his life span, and which he has lived for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And as he's dying, there's this kind of good visual effect of his, like, you see his skeleton sort of phasing in and out beneath him as steam is escaping his body. And Rose is going on this sort of monologue of all the things he's done and you did this and you were there. I love stuff like that in vampire stories. Same. You know, you've seen kingdoms and empires rise and fall. Gladiators and yeah. Yeah, I'm here for it. I'm all here for all of that. But yeah, it's a it's it's a cool sort of effect and we see how, you know, the these creatures do die. I believe at this point, um, Snakebite Andy's like well, you know, why, what, what's going on? You told me I was going to live forever. And Rose is like, I didn't tell you we were going to live forever. You, you weren't <laughs> listening to what I was saying. Yep. <laughs> Basically. That's kind of a nice character moment. Well, then you also see them uh, when Grandpa Flick does cycle through and he's, he passes, then like they all like go in for his steam, like the last bit of right. Grandpa, Grandpa Flick. Like it's, it's very full circle. Yeah. I really enjoy spending time at their like campsites. Yeah, I'm not terrified by them. I got to be honest. They don't no. scare me. Um, and this is sort of a kind of gripe I have with the the movie. I feel like they could be scarier. They're definitely scarier than Stephen King writes them. So I'll give <laughs> Mike Flanagan credit there. But they're not as scary as they could be. They're definitely not as scary yeah. as the vampires in Near Dark. I mean, I, they seem like they'd be kind of fun to hang out with, honestly. Like... As you long know, as you yeah. don't have steam, you're, right. you're fine. Like, they're kind of nice. They're just kind of a nice group of like, you know, hippie people. Well, as I was watching this movie, I just kept waiting for like, where's the the grittiness of these people? Like, when are they going to go into a bar and murder everybody right. in the bar yeah. and, you know, dance around on their corpses and stuff? Like, I, I guess I was wanting that as I was watching this, but I... You're right. I think that these people are just supposed to be enjoying themselves. Yeah. So basically at this point, Dan, uh, Abra has convinced Dan to get involved. He's going to drive to Iowa and find uh, the body of baseball boy and specifically retrieve a baseball glove that one of the true not like somebody the chunk or something <laughs> or something like that right wasn't that it or bury the chunk or something <laughs> i would be pissed if that was my true not name i'm like guys can we come up with something a little bit better than benny the chunk 
lame. Bury the chunk. Bury the chunk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Danny goes to his friend Billy to join him on this quest, this cross-country drive, um, which Billy signs on to a little too easily, in my opinion. But, you know, we need Billy alone for the, the ride, I guess. Um, as they're driving, Abra is sort of psychically projecting herself into the back seat from home. And, you know, I thought that was kind of a nice touch and it sort of foreshadows something that's going to happen later. I didn't have a problem with Billy signing on to it at all because, it, yeah, I mean, yeah because they're they're that close in friendship and they're also like in this sober journey together. And that's what people do. Like they'll just they also this is a guy that saw basically a, a, a bum walk off the bus and he's like, hey, come home with me. Right. I'll help you out. Right. Yeah. He's going right. to like he's 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 his ride or die anyway. But yeah, I thought it was cool. Like because when they're riding together, Billy is saying like, you know, it's either like you're, you know, you're right about all this and that's yeah. crazy. Or like you're, you've lost your mind. Like my best friend is insane. Like not, neither, it's not a win either way, really. So, um, I liked that conversation. And then, yeah, that, you know, Dan is, you know, chatting up with Abra and she's like telling them, you know, oh, I'll, I'll let you know when you get there where you need to go and, you know, giving directions. And I think all this stuff is good, but I do feel like this is the point at which the film is is dragging. Yeah. A bit like there, you know, this we're what are we like an hour and, and 20 minutes yeah. at this point into the, the film? And well, I think that, again, this is where, like, I feel that Flanagan should have done some adapting because in the book, it's yeah. one thing to have this situation where you've got characters driving hundreds and hundreds of miles to get things done. But in a movie, you don't want things to be this spread out. You don't want like several scenes where people are taking long car rides. Right. You know what I mean? That right. doesn't that doesn't feel like things are happening. That feels like it's just odd. It's like if I was adapting this, I would have just condense things to be closer together like you don't have to drive yeah. i mean they're literally driving to the middle of the country from new hampshire which is on the east coast and they even say like at one point like rose is like oh she's like 1500 miles away or whatever it's like these are big distances especially when they're gonna jump on another road trip later and we get to see all of that road trip right well. like like so dan and billy drive to iowa find this glove drive back to new hampshire then abra gets caught captured driven to where wherever the true knot is but then danny drives her to the overlook there's just a lot of driving yeah <laughs> you know, yeah this is where you, you you exercise some you know adapting power and change things up a little bit so that things aren't this spread out but um they go to the ethanol plant and where where abra has told them to go and they find the the uh the dead kid i love the speech uh that he gives about when he went hunting and he's had the smell yeah the buck hunting story Oof. and by giving that speech all you had to do was just show them dig up a, a little finger and Oof. you see the kid's chin and you've you kind of been set up to feel how gruesome yeah. that is. And he's, and Billy's really like upset. He's like, these people are monsters. Like they didn't even like, they buried him so shallow. Like they didn't even yeah. like, they couldn't even be bothered to like bury him, you know, in a, a, a reasonable amount. Like they just bar barely yeah. So that's a, a scene where the dialogue and the, the writing is actually 
surfacing a lot more than the visuals there. So they did very little with un- actually uncovering the kid, but the setup with all that speech yeah. made it way more disturbing. Agreed. Totally. So yeah, they they get the baseball glove and drive drive all the way back to New Hampshire. And and in <laughs> neither cut do they address calling the authorities to alert them of the body. <laughs> oh, I didn't even I didn't even think about that. Well, and and, and I'm th- and I, I'm not just nitpicking there cuz I'm like isn't that the point that they're uncovering the right. body? That was the whole the whole cell from Abra was like let's let his family know that, you know at least they can give him a proper yeah. I mean burial. even if they had just had a shot of like Dan at a, a payphone pay just yeah, yeah hanging up the phone what, or whatever. What did they do? They don't How they, did they never resolve they that? never say. They just get the baseball glove and <laughs> Did they just bury the kid back up again and, and leave him? No, there? no, they just leave his body out in the open to be picked at <laughs> by birds, I guess. It sort of bothered so me. So they just wanted to they just wanted to prove a point. They didn't care about this kid. Really. I mean, I think we're to presume that they, that they did it, yeah. Did something, but it's a little weird that in neither version do we get even a second where they acknowledge doing something. Like a quick anonymous call or something. Sending an email, I don't know, something. Right. I'm sure they do. Yeah. They're nice guys, but yeah, it's not in the actual either movie. I like to think that they did something. They did the right thing. I'm sure they did. So they get back to, all the way back to New Hampshire to Abra's house, and Dan has told Abra that she needs to tell her parents what's going on. So when they arrive back at um, Abra's now dad, who's the only one home because mom's with the grand dying grandma, dad is like, are you are you Uncle Dan? And he's mm. pissed and he's going to kick the shit out of him. And um, it, this the scene is a little bit different in the, the theatrical and the director's cut, because in the theatrical, Abra basically psychically projects the images into her father's head that, you know, of the um, of baseball boy getting killed and everything. And then they cut right to him having a drink. But in the um, in the director's cut, Abra doesn't project the images into her father's mom into her father's mind at that point. She just basically causes him pain so that he stops beating up Danny. Then they go into the kitchen. You know, there's a little bit more with the father where he's like, what's going on? And then Danny's like, Abra, you got to show him. And then Abra puts the images in his mind. Then he pours himself a drink. So, you know, I get why they condensed it for the theatrical. They made it sort of the scene and condensed it. Yeah, no, it's good. I feel like the, the film could have used a little bit more of that. Yes. I like that the dad offers both Danny and Billy a drink and they're like, nope. Nope. (laughs) Uh, No, thanks. I would have definitely grabbed that booze. (laughs) So then, you know, Abra is holding the baseball glove and she gets a look at the the true knot in the van and and stuff. Um, So then it moves to this sequence where Danny and um, Billy set a trap for the true knot where they basically... This is set up to be revealed as the scene plays out, but basically psych- Abra psychically projects herself onto a uh, her stuffed uh, rabbit. I'm not really totally sure how this works, but whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a movie and it's magic and it just works. So they lead them into this trap. The True Knot thinks that they're following Abra out into this like campground in the woods. Snakebite Andy goes up to Abra and is basically like, we're friends. And she's using her push power to make Abra docile. Although I kind of think the true knot show themselves as being pretty dumb here. Basically Abra is just sitting on a 
on a picnic table like she's meditating and they they're like they don't suspect anything's funny <laughs> like yeah. they've gone through all this trouble to chase down this super powerful psychic girl and they're not they don't see this as like totally obviously a trap so yeah uh, snake bite andy goes up to abra with a needle of drugs she jabs it into abra's neck but it's not really abra it's a stuffed toy and danny and billy open fire at them with hunting rifles a little uncomfortable of a scene in this day and age of active shooters like even when i first saw this part of the movie and it it didn't occur to me while i was reading it but in the theater i was kind of like this is a you know it's i get the plan it makes sense the true not are terrible they deserve to die but it's like it's kind of fucked up that they're just like snipering them from the woods the, the vigilante element of it yeah. right i just found this this scene to be a little muddled the uh true not didn't seem very well prepared but then i didn't really understand what their plan was which was the point i didn't quite understand what was happening until it was happening Maybe it would have uh, been beneficial to have a little bit more of what their plan was and to be scared of the true knot. And then when the true knot shows up, like they're more menacing or threatening, this plan could go wrong. Yeah. When you have a, a plan, I would like to hear it a little bit more. It kind of puts me on the edge of my seat. Well, they don't tell you because they want to have that reveal that Abra is not yeah. really with them. You know, that's why they don't tell you because they want that aha moment where. Yeah, I'm, I'm being nitpicky. I, I think you're right. At that, But I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's totally effective because you don't really believe Abra's just sitting there out in the open right. waiting to get like jabbed with a needle. Like it doesn't, you know, something's that this is a ploy. So I think you could have come up with something better. You could have come up with something better to take. And also the true knot basically gets taken out too easily here. You know, there there are casualties. Um, basically, Danny and Billy pick them all off relatively easily. But Snakebite Andy hides in the RV and then Danny's trying to reload and she comes out of the RV and is gets the push on him and is like stop and then Billy shoots her but then she gets Billy to shoot himself so Billy yeah. dies. No, that seems really good but you're right this brings up a, a larger problem is that the true knot is pretty easily fooled and and they're underpowered yeah all the time and you know we're we're about to get to the ending which sort of reveals how unprepared the true knot is and and you're right they're just you can kind of take care of this this group that's been around for hundreds of years yes. right and has managed to sustain themselves in in their numbers until now and it's pretty easy to just pick them off with they're a gun. being picked off and totally uh, like outsmarted at every turn by a former drunk <laughs> right. and a teenage girl yeah these are like ancient beings yes and they can't think a few steps ahead of a former drunk and a teenage girl yeah so so we get to this scene and it's kind of it's it's showing you how easily they can be picked off and then when we do get to the the grand standoff the grand finale it's just seems like they're not that threatening because i feel like oh they're gonna t just they're gonna totally 
outsmart him. I'm going to give Jen a chance to pipe in here. First of all. Unleash. Unleash. Yeah, I am. So first of all, <laughs> back at the house, uh, we do get a little, I don't know if this is in the, I think it's in the theatrical or directors. I'm not sure. It might be in both. Dan does say to Abra, like, we're going to need you to do a trick. And she's like, a magic trick? So that's right. set up that Abra's going to be doing oh. something. Also, um, yeah, the True Knot, maybe they're just a bunch of dummies. I don't know. But when they are dealing with Dan and Abra, who are like the the super big bads of The Shining, like, I think that's what we're supposed to get out of this. And and Sebastian and I have had problems with this since we saw this in the theater. This was our big, like, like he was like, it's really driven a wedge in our marriage. Yes. We're, we're going to have to seek counseling <laughs> now because of this. <laughs> no, um, because like, I, I just feel like we're getting, I, I hear both of what you're saying, but I also feel like, yes, these beings have been around for centuries, but they over and over again are like, I've never felt this much power. Like, so, yes. you know, I, I think that's just what the, the, and maybe like you said, it's being true to the book and maybe it's sticking too true to the book, but I feel like that's what's going on there. Also, when they're having the, the shootout and they're getting picked off. Yes. At the same time, I'm like, we've established that Billy was a hunter at one point, but like, I didn't know that Danny could use a rifle, but okay, yeah. that's fine. They're really good at this, but there is also <laughs> some other of the true knots that have like, a, one of them has like a handgun and she's yes. shooting at them too. So there is some, yeah. some crossfire going on. No, no. Yeah. They're, they, 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 they defend themselves. Yeah. Yeah. They're sure. not just like, they're not just like, Ugh. and then um, also that was what you had as a callback to the stuffed animal is a, uh, is a bunny. So it's a callback to the the magician scene yes. that you were talking about. So that, that, that was part, that was all dialed in there. Um, and then snake by Danny gets shot in the shoulder. So right. she's in the trailer because she's shot in the shoulder. She comes out, as you said, she tells Dan, you're going to sleep now. And it takes her a couple of times because Dan is strong. Yes. So she has to say yeah. a couple of times, like, you're sleepy. Don't you want to sleep? And then finally he sleeps. And then that's when Abra's like, no, Dan, Dan, wake up. And then uh, Billy shoots Snape by Danny fatally, but she still has enough left to say, kill yourself, which is such a, like that scene crushed me because I loved yeah, Billy. Devastating. And I yeah. think that that's, this is what I was talking about earlier, that this is why her, Snake by Danny's power, there's two times where it comes up where it's, it's really important and it's getting Jacob Tremblay into the van. Yes. And then, uh, and then this with Billy is just like, it just, I was just like, my heart just sunk. I was like, not Billy, not after all they've been through. I'm going to throw something out there though, which I, I think you won't necessarily disagree with. And it, and it is this, that why kill snake bite Annie here? Why not have her somehow get away or live? Because she is, she's like the, the right, like she is a useful character. So yeah. it's like you have her be the one survivor here. You have her kill Billy, right? And then get away. And then she can be with Rose in the climax and you'll feel a little bit, there'll be a little bit more of a threat. You know what I mean? Because in yeah. the climax, we yeah. just have Rose and like Snakebite, Andy is powerful. This is a powerful yeah. power to be able to do this. Like, and then you'd be like, sh you'd be like, shit, snake. You know, like, and then you can have snake bite Andy in the the hotel, and like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I I don't understand why at every chance the story takes away the villain's power. 
when you, you need to be building it up so that it feels like it's a real there's threat no way they're going to be able to beat them. Yeah. I do agree with you. I think having uh, Snakebite Andy like stick around longer would have made sense because she is like unique. She's different than the other True Knots. I don't really care that the other True Knots get killed. I don't either. Yeah. They're not really characters. Right. They're fodder. Right. Other than Crow Daddy. Which has a great death. Right. But he dies in the next scene. But it's such a good death. I love that scene. It's a fucking great scene. It's a good scene. I'm not criticizing the scene. I'm criticizing the decision to take out him, hit the character before we get to the climax because we're again taking out the power of the villain. Basically, Abra really is still at home and she realizes as she's sort of psychically viewing this scene that there's one of the uh, true not missing and it is Crow Daddy and Crow Daddy's in her house and he gets her with a needle in the neck, which then kind of begs the question. So Crow Daddy knew that this was a trap and he just let the other people go into the trap. And why didn't they have a conversation about like, right. He's kind of acting rogue here. Like he's just feels like he was voted out of this plan. Maybe they just split yeah. up and they didn't no. really know what was going to go on. That is odd that he's at Abra's house. Cause it implies that he knows that they were setting a trap for them. And if he, he knew they were setting a trap for them, why did Snakebite Andy go up to a stuffed animal and inject it with, <laughs> and why did they all get <laughs> shot? I, I think it's what we're supposed to understand is they just split up to cover more ground mm -hmm. or whatever, and they don't really know. To try different avenues. Right, that. right, right. Yeah. Anyway, I won't nitpick that too much. And I don't want, I don't want it to be misunderstood. I like the movie overall. I do. I just have some pretty serious problems with it, especially once. I do, too. I, I, I actually totally enjoy this movie. Um, it's one of the better Stephen King For movies. sure. So basically what happens is Crow Daddy has Abra in his car or in his van or whatever. And then um, so, you know, it seems like all is lost, except that Danny manages to psychically connect with Abra and he goes into her body, basically. And you know this because her eyes suddenly turn blue and her dialogue, which is awesome because you hear this, you know, teenage girl saying like, wow, I feel really hungover. Yeah. yeah I haven't yeah, felt yeah. this bad in years. And you know what? I don't miss it one bit. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's just really <laughs> great. And Crow Daddy's like looking at her like, and then he's, who are you now? <laughs> and, and this seems important too, because you're really seeing how they've honed in their powers to be used in conjunction together. Yeah. Like now they've they've really got it down as this dynamic yeah. duo. So yeah, uh, Danny basically gets Crow Daddy to, uh, because he notices Crow Daddy doesn't have, wear a seatbelt because, and it's a funny little line where it's like, somebody who lives forever doesn't worry about wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> and then he gets him to crash into, he psychically moves the steering wheel and gets him to crash into a, into a tree, which, you know, conveniently Abra is totally fine, but you know, it's a movie. She was wearing her seatbelt. She had, she had like two seatbelts on. She was buckled in. Crow Daddy is killed and then Abra's sort of walking along on the road and she sees a psychic projection of Rose in the road and is basically like, fuck you. And then, uh, yeah, so now we're heading into our climax at the Overlook Hotel. Um, Rose is binging on steam to go after Abra and uh, Danny meets um, Abra at a motel and she's like, well, where are we going? And Danny tells her like he's taking her to the Overlook Hotel because that's where he had to deal with all these horrible things, which, okay. No. <laughs> well, he says, he says it's a, 
it's a place that's very dangerous for people like us. Yes. So I guess it must be dangerous for Rose too, right? right? So that's this the plan. This is the plan. Okay, yes. <laughs> this is a terrible plan. Basically, in the, in the, and, and I've made, I, I know Jen and I have discussed this before, but I have a real problem not with them going to the Overlook Hotel. I think, of course, you got to have the climax at the Overlook yes. Hotel. However, the fact that Danny is the one who decides that they have to go have their final stand at the Overlook Hotel makes no sense because at this hotel are all these ghosts and stuff which have are already out to get him. So and not to mention, you know, it's where his father went crazy. And, you know, this this is not you do not look at this from a strategic point of view and go like, oh, yeah, this is what we do. Like we, because, you know, this this other woman who also has powers like we do is also going to have a tough time with all of this. That's why we need to bring her there. <laughs> what you need to do is have Rose get Abra and go there to defend herself from Danny and to use the ghost to go at for Danny. Yeah. Like this is a flimsy, flimsy reason. Yeah. You've I have, have talked about this before and, and you're totally right. It's you want the showdown and it's, it's absolutely you want to have the showdown you at the it. Overlook. And I think it's great that you have a, a reason in this film because in the book, the the Overlook has been burned down to the ground. And I guess in Dr. Sleep, the book, they just go to the ruins yeah. yes. of it. So you have this wonderful opportunity to go back to the Overlook Hotel. And that's what everybody wants. It's kind of how this film got made. It's like, let's go back to yes. the Overlook. But as a showdown... Yeah, you're right. It's stupid. And by switching the the roles of the the captor and and using it as a trap for Danny, it actually could have been great. And having Danny to reluctantly go to the Overlook Hotel and having to try to navigate his way around all these traps that Rose is now controlling. Right. Would have kind of been amazing. The only thing I can think is just that Stephen King wrote it that way, and so yeah. they don't want to mess mess with it, I guess. And I'll, I'll admit, as soon as they got to the gas station and you start seeing snow falling, like I started getting really excited, right? I was like, oh, there's the gas station. Then you see the the recreations of the helicopter shots from Kubrick's Shining only and driving night. up the, the mountain road at night, and you hear the music come in. And it's, I got, I got chills. I was like, oh, this is, this is great. But, uh, but once they got up there, it was like, okay, we're here. We're at the Overlook. And he's like, Abra, uh, sit in the car. I'm going to go inside and just kind of hang out. He's going to go inside and wake it up. Right, right. I'm going to, I'm going to wake it up. But that's, again, like, this is, this is the plan. As a viewer, I'm like, this is awful. (laughs) You're going to just go inside and try to, disturb the the haunted house to get it ready and if abra had been captured by rose and was already in the house you wouldn't have this ludicrous moment where it's like oh just wait in the car like why bring her there at all wait in the car this is supposed to be he says this is a dangerous place for people like this so wait in the car They should have kept cutting to scenes of like Abra like listening to different radio stations like (laughs) and he spent you were to understand that he like kind of hung out in there for a long time. Yeah. While Abra's 
burning gas with the heater on in the car. Like, right. He's he's like going around to all the old familiar places. He hangs out at the bar. He goes to the old uh, apartment quarters and puts his head through the, the hole in the door from, you know, the here's Johnny hole. And uh, he goes and he turns on the um, boiler room. Okay. So if you remember our Nightmare on Elm Street podcast, I have a real hard on for boiler rooms. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, the boiler room in this is the reconciling the end of the novel with this movie, because in the end of the shining novel, um, the way that that Jack defeats the overlook is that he, um, he, you know, he's been tasked with maintaining the boiler throughout their stay at the overlook. And if you don't pay attention to the boiler, it overheats and it can explode. And, and that's what happens is Jack forgets about the boiler. It overheats and explodes. And that's how the, the, the evil is defeated. In this, Danny intentionally turns on the boiler. I mean, it's a little weird that the boiler still works and blah, 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 whatever, and that there's still electricity. But, you know, let's not nitpick that. Well, generator. I could, I buy that. Yeah. I'm just being a jerk. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so he turns on the boiler to get it all warmed up, basically to blow it up to warm up the and the ghosts and yeah to get the ghosts all toasty so that they'll come out (laughs) yeah but we are at the overlook and we are getting a lot of like really enjoyable nostalgia porn here the climax should be like this is the the best part of the film and it's really just not for me um i'm happy that we're back there i appreciate all the work that went into recreating it i think that's all cool i like that he's going in you know we're going down memory lane with you know that the scene I like I really do like the scene with um Lloyd slash Jack Torrance, Henry Thomas in yeah. the bar where they're, you know, having this this back and forth where, you know, Ewan McGregor is you know, you're Jack Torrance, you're my dad, yeah. and he's like, I don't you've got me mistaken with somebody else and first viewing of that scene, I could couldn't deal with it because you've got Henry Thomas playing Jack <laughs> Nicholson, which is weird. But upon repeat viewings now, I get what's going on there. And it's not, he's not Jack Nicholson. He's actually credited as the bartender. He's Lloyd the bartender. Right. He's just wearing the the face of Danny's father. Yes. He's not, he's not Jack. I didn't get that when I first saw it. I like that scene a lot, but there's also a, a thing about that scene that kind of, kind of chafe against it. So he's having this conversation with Lloyd, the bartender, who's wearing the face of Jack Torrance. And Dan is sort of telling him what happened to um, his mom. And like, you know, my mom died. She got sick by something. It's not specified what. It's cancer. Yeah. And he's so Dan's talking about how like her face, he kept seeing flies on her face. And, you know, he couldn't even look at her because of all the flies. And Lloyd, Jack or whatever, the bartender keeps sort of pushing the booze on him. And he's like, don't you even care about about this? This is your wife. And, you know, that's when he's like, I think you have me mistaken with Mm -hmm. somebody else or, you know, I'm just the bartender here. But then he starts going on. And and so I'm, I'm liking the scene a lot up to this point. But then he starts going on about how having a wife and kid is is a is a burden and and blah 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 all these things that were Jack's problems but they're not Danny's problems like it it doesn't work that well as at this part of the scene for me because he's trying to get Danny to drink but he's doing it by talking about the th- reasons why Jack drank 
And Mm -hmm. Dan doesn't have those reasons. He's not married. He doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it's completely an ineffective ghost ploy because (laughs) you're not hinting at the things that bother Danny. He should be getting at the things that bother Danny. This is the, the main problem that I was having with all the ghosts in general is the point of view is totally wrong because the same with all the, the ghosts that come up uh, like the great party guy and all that stuff. That's all from Jack Torrance's experiences. Danny had his own experiences, which would have been interesting to explore. But when we see these ghosts, it's all from Jack Torrance's experiences. And it, I was as I was watching it upon the first viewing in the theater, it hit me that way as all of these just did not fit. None of these things fit. And they just seemed to it's this seemed like fan service. And I think you can you can have these same ghosts like I think we were talking before about the bathroom woman, the corpse. You can have that ghost. And I think it would be even more interesting to see that ghost approach Danny from a different way Mm -hmm. than we've seen before and just don't copy that same shot where she pulls the curtain out and crawls out of the bath the the exact same way that we experienced it in Kubrick's The Shining with Jack Torrance but have her walk up the stairs or something like some other way so like oh that ghost right but it's coming after Danny like this is a different you know this is Danny's interaction with them now but yeah, to see the the twins say, come play with that. Well, no, that, that, is, that Danny. is Danny. But I feel like just having all the greatest hits coming in there is not doing any service for the film at all at this point. One little bit of fan service that does not end up in the theatrical that ends up in the director's cut. Lloyd, the bartender, like basically knocks the drink off the bar and it gets on Dan's coat. So he t- in the director's cut, he takes him into the red bathroom, you know, which they painstakingly recreated. Only now Jack, quote unquote, is dressed in the tuxedo that Grady Delbert, Delbert Grady was wearing in The Shining. And he's like cleaning off his jacket like he did to Jack. But the, the thing that works well in this scene is this is where Danny tells jack slash grady or whatever that he changed his eye colors because mm-hmm. my mom every time he looked at his mother his mother looked at him she saw jack and and that's why he did it so that she wouldn't have to feel that every time she looked at him so it, it, was, it was kind of a pretty mm-hmm. good scene and it's in that bathroom which if you love the shining you love that bathroom <laughs> so yeah totally and, so i kind of am sad they cut it rose shows up and she sort of strolls into the to the overlook and we get the scene where she, you know, sees goes to the elevators and the blood comes out of the elevator and because that's what the shining happens in the shining and she's sort of into it. And then they have their sort of confrontation in the Colorado lounge where Danny and Abra are standing on the, they've got the high ground on the stairs. Well, the, well first they, they psychically project Rose into the hedge maze and, you know, because we got to go into the hedge maze. That's fine. That's that's a, yeah. I'm fine with that. That yeah. works for me. I like that. Abra's like cutting her legs with a knife. I, I like all of that. I think that's all great. And that's actually works into Dan having some sort of a plan. Like maybe that's what he was thinking. Like, oh, I know, I know how to do this. We can utilize right. that maze, but it's still it's a little muddled because she's like only psychically projected there. So. Rose gets out of the hallucination of the maze and she 
gets Danny with the axe and throws him down the stairs, which is a really good stunt. Oh, yeah, it's great. And that axe always freaked me out in The Shining because it's got that spike in the back Mm -hmm. of it. And I was always like, (laughs) yeah. Like, I was obsessed with that axe as a kid because it just was so threatening looking, like way more threatening than a normal axe because of that yeah, spike. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they they make that axe anymore. That seems like a very early right. 80s axe that's <laughs> yeah, been like discontinued. Some kid <laughs> fell on one of those axes and like yeah. it <laughs> poked his eye out. But yeah, like that axe is... <laughs> well, and she uses that axe like to the full advantage because... She like, uses she... that spike in the axe. Yes, and she like she kicks his ass and like she's like gets his femoral artery like and and yes. like and then you know she's that's when she's having her whole moment of like wow why didn't we find you and like you know and then she's like putting her sticking her thumbs into the wound and just like getting his steam that tastes like booze she's like you taste like whiskey yeah <laughs> by the time we see all the the ghosts running around in the it, it's that's when it starts to feel like a universal horror nights i don't even know if it's that good honestly <laughs> like once they like once the ghosts show up that just seems like kind of day player like let's get everybody in makeup and we're gonna all like yeah Shining yeah like, cosplay crowd around <laughs> rebecca ferguson yeah. and I'm, I'm not scared i'm just like they, they i can no. see all these people like hanging out at craft services a few, a few minutes before <laughs> like talking about like whatever like local theater production they've been in recently honestly at this point when all the ghosts show up and everything i am like just wrap this up like I, I'm honestly like I'm done. Do you think at the the craft services table there was the the blowjob bear <laughs> like that got cut from the film? Yeah. Like he was around there somewhere too. <laughs> BJ the bear. Oh. <laughs> but we're not done because now uh, Rose is killed by the ghosts and she uh, cycles off. The ghosts now possess Danny. Yeah. Which I'm not really sure why. I don't, I don't know. And he goes all he goes all Jack Torrance, and he's got like one cloudy eye for some yeah. reason, which I don't understand that either. Like I guess because he's possessed by ghosts. Because he's conflicted. Because he's still yeah, fighting. None of this. This is when we first saw the movie. I was pretty much okay with the climax up to this point. Just you know, on my first, just enjoying the movie pass. But even it, even in my first time when this happens, I'm like, really? Is this what we're doing now? He's gonna chase. <laughs> abra around like he's jack no i don't like any of this yeah yeah i get why they did it it just doesn't work i get it 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 just it doesn't it doesn't work for me either and like i said i just like i would have been fine if like that kind of just if it just ended with rebecca ferguson's death i don't know it just felt like there were so many different ways you could have played this out and almost anything you thought of would be better than what they did and i was thinking of those as i was watching it for the first time like it just kind of felt like yeah like you said like ah i guess we're doing this i can't imagine that there weren't better ideas floated as to how to 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 finish this off it's a kind of a forgettable final climax like he sort of sees his mom I actually like that part. Like that seemed cheesy to me at the first time because I think I was so kind of like annoyed by how this had gone that when it got to that, I'm like, oh, okay, now we're going to have ghost mom touch his cheek and now he's going to be baby Danny again. <laughs> but now, but now I'm actually like, oh, this part actually works. You know what I mean? Like, so I kind of like it. I more. think, I think it works. I like that part too. And I think that, um, I think it's just 
I think the whole film, and I, I don't know if they even, if they mentioned this, this is, if, if I, I don't want to say like I'm coming up with this because this might have been in the special features as well, but I feel like it's really a lot about um, giving props to Wendy. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, like I feel like because because Wendy because Wendy's so like abused and like and, and just treated terribly in in The Shining. She, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot more love for Wendy. For sure. Yeah, she kind of gets re- more redeemed in this. And there's the meta thing with uh, with Shelley Duvall being tormented by uh, Kubrick. By Kubrick, which yeah. I I can tell you right now that uh, Alex Esso was not tormented no. by Mike Flanagan. By Mike Flanagan. No, <laughs> I don't see that happening. Not in a million years. No. <laughs> the behind the scenes stuff, she seems to be having a blast. Yes. Actually, so it's not it's that's not happening in this movie. Um, okay, so yeah, the boiler explodes. Abra's outside the hotel, so she's not caught in the maelstrom of fire. And do we see that we see some sirens, some yes. lights coming up the hill, right? So that's yeah. how Abra gets out. And then so we get this, it sort of fades into this cross fades into the scene where Abra's at home and she's talking to Danny and, you know, about what happened and everything. And she's like, and that's when I knew you were okay. I pretty much guessed at this point that Danny was a ghost. Well, they don't try really hard to hide that. Yeah. Right, right, right. They kind of tell you pretty quickly that. I'm kind of sad that Danny's that Dan died. I am sad that Dan died, but I like, I, I do like that the message with this though is like that he's okay and that, yes. you know, um, she's like, daddy's okay to like, we go on, right. you know, we don't just. Yeah, I, I actually loved that. I found it very touching. I thought that was kind of beautiful and way she said like, we do go on afterwards and daddy's fine and you know, so Abra kind of had this arc and she found solace. And she accepts her gifts and everything because Dan, you know, he's like, I'm sorry I told you not yes. to to shine. And, you know, and then the mom comes in, asks her if she's talking to somebody. She says she's not. But then she follows after her mom is like, no, I'm sorry. I was talking to Dan. Actually, now that I think about it, I think it, it does kind of work. Yeah. That Dan is, is dead because he's a part right. of Abra now. Whereas if, if he was alive, that could have gotten creepy. I think it works. I just think it's sad. I want more Dan Torrance. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad that Dan Torrance is not in the world anymore. But yes. it's like, it's good yeah. that he is now her Dick Halloran. Yeah. Okay, so that's the end of the movie. Oh, well, yeah, Abra then, Mrs. Massey is now in Abra's bathroom. So we get a little scare at the end and she, but you know, Abra's, Mrs. Massey ain't nothing to Abra. Abra's got to handle that. <laughs> uh, I, 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 again, I kind of hate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, I like this movie. I have expressed my grievances with it, which I think are not insignificant, but they don't change the fact that I like the movie. It is not a good sequel to the movie The Shining, but it is a very good adaptation of a Stephen King book. And I blame most of my problems with the movie on the book. I blame my problems with the movie on Mike Flanagan not wanting to piss off Stephen King, basically, is is what I think it really amounts to. I think he's a great director. I think that despite these problems, I think the movie pretty much works. I think it's an enjoyable movie. I think it looks great. I think the performances are pretty great all around, except for the ghosts in the hotel. Not a five-star experience, but... It's it's a good movie. I actually I I kind of love Doctor Sleep. I'm down to anytime you know I'm like I was looking forward to watching it this time for the podcast and you know I 
was happy to watch both cuts as well. Um, it's giving the people, you know, what they want. And I'm such a fan of Mike Flanagan. I love the entire cast. I think it was so well cast. Um, I, I, yeah, I just, I have a lot of love for Dr. Sleep. It's not perfect and that's okay, but it's, it's, you know, it's something that I like to, sp- I, it's a place I like to spend time. I think Mike Flanagan did an amazing job with this and I totally enjoy this film. I love kind of stepping into any Stephen King adaptation that's done fairly well, if not great. You know, any any Stephen King adaptation for me is always enjoyable, but this one is definitely higher caliber yes. than most. Films like this are always kind of doomed in some way. When you when you make a sequel to something, it's not just a sequel to a classic Stephen King book, but you're trying to make a sequel to one of the greatest horror films made by one of the greatest directors in cinema. There's no way that you can touch that. I don't blame anybody for this. And I think Stephen King totally had fun writing a follow-up to his his classic novel. And I think that's great that he gave us that, you know, to, to take on a project like this was totally fun. And I can see how a studio would put money into this. Like, let's go back to the Overlook Hotel. That's a summer thrill ride. I just don't really know how you can really pull that off. That takes us to our final question and the question that tentpole trauma seeks to ask all of the films we cover. And, you know, so this movie cost about $50 million and it opened really low. Like it opened to like $30 million. It actually worldwide managed to eke out, I think, $70 million, but with marketing and everything like that, plus like worldwide grosses, are really only like half or a percentage of what the American gross is. It was a financial failure and a pretty big one in the States, especially. Certainly, they did not get the kind of money they were hoping to get from a sequel to one of the most famous horror movies of all time. Interestingly, I don't have a real take on why this failed. Critically, it did well. So you would think that if you are a fan of The the Shining and you saw the the good reviews you'd be like oh cool well if this sounds good i'm gonna go see this shining sequel and you know there's a lot of fans of the shine i don't know anybody who hasn't seen the shining it's kind of baffling to me why it tanked as bad as it did you know it was released after halloween which was sort of dumb like it was like a, it came out in november <laughs> it came out on my birthday i believe so it was like a week or two after Halloween. So I don't know if that was maybe a problem. I don't know if it's just, it was too long for a horror movie. I don't know if the marketing failed it or if people just don't want to see a movie about you and McGregor in the Overlook Hotel. I really kind of don't have a real take on why it failed. It had a pretty aggressive marketing campaign, didn't it? I remember seeing billboards for it all over the place. Yeah, in LA at least, it was everywhere. It felt like I thought it was going to be at least a moderate hit. The only thing I can think of is just from some of the reactions from other horror nerds that we know. Uh To, you know, piggyback kind of on what Troy said, like, I don't know how, like, you do make a sequel to The Shining. I mean, people, if if you're, like, super protective of, the Shining, mm-hmm. like I don't know 
if you're going to be like, if you're even going to go in open-minded enough to see what they're going to do with this, you know what I mean? Like, is but it, I feel I, like everybody who was a fan of The Shining wanted to see this. Like, I didn't meet anybody who was like, yeah, I don't care about that stupid movie. Who's a fan of that? I mean, everybody was curious. At least. No, of course, but I mean, I've had like, I've had conversations, you know, online with people who either are horror fans or whatever, and they, you know, like this one girl I know was like, oh, I, you know, I saw Doctor Sleep recently, and I was like, oh. I was like, I really love that. And she was like, really? Like, what did you love about it? I mean, I, I do I do think if you're like a hardcore fan of The Shining, there's probably a lot here that you're not going to like. But I mean, you'd still go see it. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like it, it goes beyond, you know, super fans and horror nerds. It's This has been done before with Kubrick when they did 2010 right right yeah yeah and and that was written by the same author it was arthur c clark but it's just like after 2001 like he's he's got these that's also like the greatest science fiction film ever made yeah you just can't go near it and everybody knows that right you know so you you know you're getting sort of sloppy seconds right with with these things and it's not like a sequel to a, a film that's made by the same director and this is part two you you already know that you can't reach that level of greatness. And so everybody's got the bar really low. So I think it's for the, the casual person that just kind of wants to go on that ride a little bit. I think also, too, I think not everybody, as far as people going to see it, I, I feel like the person that I was just telling you about, like they just, they're, they're definitely a horror person and they just saw it recently. Even though they're a fan of The Shining, like what for whatever reason, it wasn't like I have to go to the theater and see this. It you wasn't know? a must see thing. Yeah. So maybe that was maybe that was the same with a lot of fans like, oh, you know, that's cool. I'll catch it later type thing. I think maybe I'm just overestimating the desire to see a Shining sequel. I think that's probably <laughs> my blind spot here. But I, I think that uh, about covers it. So um, thank you, Jennifer, for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Troy. Always a pleasure. I'm going to go um, pull on my yoga pants uh, <laughs> and uh, huff some steam and go on a transcendental journey. <laughs> that about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows? One day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.